La Boheme. I sometimes think that Puccini's opera uh, is perhaps one of the two most perfect works in the entire repertoire. The other, of course, is Carmen. Uh, a very simple reason, there isn't an ounce of dramatic flab, I think, on either work. As far as La Boheme is concerned, each of the four acts has its own pace, its own timbre. The characters are fully rounded and developed. The score is bound together with a handful of wonderfully easily remembered musical themes. And frankly, this is an opera that would make stones weep. If you don't cry by the end of this opera, I refuse to believe you're a member of the human race. <laughs> Most of us start, actually, the moment Mimi walks upstairs, but never mind. Um, there are, of course, two bohems um, with librettos that were carved originally from Seine de la Vie de Bohème, scenes from Bohemian Life, a collection of stories by Henri Moget that was published originally in Paris in 1851 and was set ten years earlier in the 1840s in the Latin Quarter. In 1893, Leon Cavallo, uh, the uh, uh, creator of Pagliacci, began work on a version of uh, these stories uh, that he hoped would be quite as much of a hit as Pagliacci had been. Um, he foolishly told Puccini what he was up to. Puccini at this stage was thinking how on earth he was going to follow up the enormous success of Manon Lesco, and he decided, he told a friend, to write an opera about the Buddha, which is possibly one of the most improbable operatic projects one can imagine, Puccini's Buddha. Um, but he'd also begun to be interested in Verga, the Sicilian writer, who had provided, of course, the story for Cavalleria Rusticana. And indeed, he'd been to Sicily uh, and thought about it, and it was a story called The She-Wolf. But he was put off this story on his way back on the boat from Sicily when he met, this is one of these complicated 19th century, early 20th century stories, he met the daughter of uh, 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 the woman who would become Wagner's second wife, Cosima, by her first husband, Hans von Bullo, who rubbished the story. Puccini, who was very easily put off ideas, decided he wasn't going to turn The She-Wolf into an opera. At which point he meets Leon Cavallo and tells, he's told, and he meets, of course, I've been working on this too, you know. And basically, he pressures his publisher, Ricordi, uh, uh, to let him have a go and writes a very, very, very incongruous letter to the papers explaining how it is that he and Leon Cavallo are both writing uh, La Boheme. Um, so, in a sense, it's Puccini's desire to compete, another part of his character, that will lead him to do it. And he takes with him uh, on the project the two librettists who'd helped to make Manon Lesco his first resounding hit. They are, of course, Giuseppe Giacosa and Luigi Illica. And as always with Puccini, the three men, particularly the two librettists, have weeks and weeks and weeks of fighting to get the libretto right. Uh, for Puccini, it's almost like some complicated personal social ritual challenging, I think, the librettists. In the process, first Giacosa threatens to resign, complaining to the publisher's recording that he was, what he was doing was, I quote, not artistic work, but minute pedantry and most wearisome. Well, he's coaxed back into the project, and then Luigi Illica has a temper tantrum and gets the hump, declaring that he felt used, cast aside, taken up again, and once more shoved away like a dog. So both the writers have had a good moan, and you would expect possibly Puccini to take some account of this. On the contrary, he himself is absolutely firm, determined. He says, writing to Ricordi, Illica should calm down, and then we shall get on with the work. But I too want to have my say as the necessity arises, and I am not prepared to do anybody else's bidding. No doubt who was master of the whole project. 
Well, by 1895, the libretto in four acts had just about been hammered out between the three of them, and Puccini started to compose. But he was still demanding changes, very interestingly, in the fourth act. Originally, they thought they would have the, the story in five acts, and there was an extraordinary idea at one stage that act one will be divided at the point after the Bohemians have set off for Café Momus, uh, and before Rodolfo and Mimi uh, have their extended uh, love duet culminating in Suave Fanciulla. Uh, an extraordinary idea. Anyway, they were, they were rescued from this idea. Um, and it was composed in four acts, but the final rewrites were all about Act 4 and how to do, basically, the reactions of the Bohemians before Mimi arrives and when she does arrive, the fact that she's dying. When it was done, Puccini, who wrote the opera at his house in Torre del Lago, which you can go to, he would tell his biographer that when he'd finished the scene with Mimi's death, I quote, I had to get up, and standing in the middle of my study, alone in the silence of the night, I began to weep like a child. It was as though I had seen my own child die. And of course, audiences have been weeping ever since that first performance of the opera at the Teatro Reggio Turin in February the 1st, 1896. In the pit to conduct that first performance was a very young conductor, just about making his career. He was 28. His name was Arturo Toscanini. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a trio of guests tonight to explore Puccini's opera and to talk about designing opera here at English National Opera. Lisa Wilson, who's covering the role of Mimi, will be sharing her ideas about one of Puccini's most tender heroines, and we're joined by Richard McGrath, who's a member of the music staff also here at English National Opera. And our first guest is Isabella Byswater, Bywater, who designed this production, costumes and sets uh, for La Boheme. So will you please welcome Isabella Bywater. Isabella, I thought we'd talk a little bit about being a designer first. Um, uh, did you always want to design for the theatre? Since I was 17. Yes, I wanted to be an architect when I, when I um, was a child, but uh, I got the theatre under my skin at about 17, so since then. Uh, can you remember the moment when suddenly you decided you didn't want to build um, house extensions and you were <laughs> Yes, I do. I, went, I, was, I was at school in Cambridge and I, I was in love with one of the undergraduates and he was in the Jew of Malta. And I went to see the Jew of Malta and it was designed by Tanya McCallum. And it was unusual, so I, I noticed it. And I thought after the, I'd seen that production, this is what I want to do. And I decided overnight and I've, 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 it was a very good decision. What kind of training do you need to be a theatre designer? What, what did you do once you made this decision, you'd finish school and sit out? I, um, I consciously trained um, by apprenticing myself to various people. I apprenticed as a scene painter and as a prop maker and as an assistant to another designer, other designers. Um, eventually, I actually went to Motley, which is a very good um, one-year postgraduate kind of school. But I spent three years actually trying to learn the business um, on my feet. I wanted, to, I wanted to learn about what it was to be in the theatre. Uh, I wanted to do hands-on, so I, that's how I did it. But it, there are lots of different ways. A lot of people go to art school. Do you think it's a better choice to do what you did, which is to learn, as it were, from peers on the job than to go through one of the three-year courses say, at Wimbledon or Central St Martins or what have you, one of the, the, the formal academic courses? It was good for me. I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't really enjoy being um, at school very much, so I find it much more rewarding to work for actual projects and I find it very um, interesting uh, working for very good scene painters or prop makers and I, I work for some wonderful designers and I learned a lot working for them so for me it was very good I'm, I'm sure there are other ways of, of um, 
learning to do things. I know you've started directly, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but, but have you, did you always intend to commute between the theatre and the opera house, or was that a kind of commute that came by chance and opportunity? Well... No, I don't think I had an intention. I, I did love music when I was growing up, but I originally was... Uh, I didn't think about opera to begin with. I think I, I was interested in plays. And um, it really wasn't until I was about 22 that I started thinking seriously about working with opera. And I, and I do love it now. Now I prefer working with opera if I possibly can. But um, it's a, in the end, they're the same thing. It's just that it, I, I personally like working with music. Who, who have been the design heroes who you've acquired or come to like on the way, on the journey? Oh, well, Ralph Koltai was a huge hero of mine. I'm not, I don't know how many people here will know about Ralph Koltai, but he was a very, very important... Very great ring, the first ring yeah, in this house. Very, very important designer in the 70s, and, and I was very lucky, and um, I did work for him for about a year and a half. Hmm. So I would say he was one of the, one of the big, hmm. important designers. He was the first person to use natural materials on stage, hmm. um, and he was very, very inventive. And he's, he's still alive, he's still here, somewhere. Not, maybe not in the room. Right. <laughs> other, other people who had a, an influence on you? Well, I guess um, Svoboda, who influenced him. Um, and um, there are people I admire, but I'm not necessarily sure they had an influence on me. I mean, I, Maria Bjornsson was very clever in her way, very differently from Ralph, but I don't think she specifically influenced me. Um, no, I would say that, that, that certainly at that, at that point when I was learning, he was the main person. And, and have you always, and did you always want to be responsible for both sets and costumes, the yes. complete feel? Yes. Why? Because if you're inventing a world, to me it's very odd not to, to invent the entire image because um, what, what people are wearing and, and, and how, they, how, they, how they are in their clothes is so intrinsic to how the how the story is being told, and I, for me, it's impossible to separate it. And of course, you can actually separate it, and and one person can do one and one the other. But because I was interested in both, uh, I've always found it much easier to to put it all together because I think of it simultaneously. So, so it isn't a case of, of finding the, the the people, the characters, and their costumes, and then finding the world they live in. You, the world and the costumes coexist from the very beginning in your mind. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Not in detail. I mean, I won't necessarily know what, what um, colour the dress is or, or exactly what's going to happen with the clothes. And I tend to actually practically design the costumes after I've designed the scenery. But they do coexist as, a, as an idea right at the beginning, yes. How does the process itself work? I mean, does the invitation to you come from a house or does it come from a producer or does it come from you saying, I, I would very much like to work on a production of... How does it work? Um... Sadly, almost never from my, my suggestion that I'd very much like to do something. Um, it comes um, almost always from the director, so I will get a phone call from whoever director it is, um, and they say, would you like to do this? And usually I say yes, if, I'm, if I can. And, and, and then what's the next process? Did, did you, do you have to be, as it were, uh, validated by the house, or has that all been done before? Occasionally, I have, I have been in a situation where the house wanted to check me out because they didn't know me, it was in Germany. Um, but normally, um, if the director is confident about you, um, the house is usually willing. I mean, they might want to check the design that you've finally come up with. Um, so it's unusual that the house is, it wants to check exactly what you're doing. Mostly it's a question of working in collaboration with the director. And would you work with any director, or do you in no. the end? No. 
<laughs> I've, of course, tempted to ask you names, but I shan't. <laughs> no, no, no. But what is it you're looking for in the director you're going to work with? Well, you need to like them. Um, you need to get, you know, you, obviously you've got to like the way they think. That's paramount. Um, and you don't have to like them enormously, but you've got to like them enough because you spend a lot of time with the director and, it, and it's a very, it's a very um, symbiotic relationship. Um, so um, they need to like you too. So you've got to enjoy their company. And, um, well, I suppose, uh, you know, you, you want to admire the way they think. <coughs> and there are lots of different kinds of director that, uh, that I admire, but not, um, you know, it's a... It's a subtle process, really, the, the, the relationship between a designer and a director. And is the key idea as clearly demarcated as sometimes we're told by critics of the opera house, the producer? Is the concept the producer directors, or is it something that evolves? It evolves. And of course, sometimes a director comes very specifically to you with an idea of a period or of a style, and in which case you, you go with that, which is, which is marvellous. But... Um, quite often it develops during the course of conversation with the director. And of course the director always has the ultimate word. So even if something was your idea, if they don't like it, they won't go with it. So it's still always a director's, um, the director's holding all the cards ultimately. But yes, it, lots of things develop th through conversation. But you can argue fiercely your corner. You can. But you always have to give way in the end. You don't really want to be in a position of giving way. What you want is that either they, they want to run with an idea you've had or not and if, they, if actually the director doesn't want to run with it it's not going to work so there's no point in, in as it were fighting for something because the production won't fly unless the director is as attached to the idea as you are you've presumably worked with the director you've sorted out the kind of broad outlines of what mm. you're going to do um, and there comes a moment in which you and the production team presumably get together w what happens once the show as it were has moved from your uh, your, your workroom, uh, uh, as it were, into a theatre. I mean, not, not I didn't mean action onto the stage, but... Well, into a rehearsal room. Yes, once it's become a production, as it were. Well, it's, it does change, because to begin with, I mean, you work often with the director for six months, on and off, um, preparing a design, because it takes quite a lot of time. I mean, uh, typically for an opera like this, it's about four and a half months work in my studio. So you've worked a long time with the director and it's just the relationship just the two of you. So of course when you then move into a rehearsal room and there's a lot of other people, it is odd because suddenly you're sharing your idea and also the director is then leading all the other people in the team. And so you can feel slightly um, odd. I, I don't have that feeling anymore but I have had it in the past. Um, sometimes where you where you, you can you can feel slightly out on a, on a limb. I, I resolve that by going to a lot of rehearsals. So I tend to go to at least an hour of rehearsals every day, if I possibly can. And, and before this, of course, you've had to show the model of what you're going to do to presumably the management of the house that you're working for. Yeah, yes. It depends on the kind of management, but yes, yeah, sometimes you have to... In, in this case, actually, I did, because um, it was my first production here and they wanted to see what I was doing, I, I guess, because Bohem is so important. It is so important that people will like it because it's a... Um, it's one of the shows that will bring money in if it goes well. Mm. Um, yeah, usually you've shown it to somebody in the management. That must be, a, I, I often think, a very nerve-wracking moment when you're required simply to try to explain with the aid of a model of the set what it is that you're going to be able to do uh, with the director in getting this piece on the stage. Well, it's always... I mean, it's always a bit nerve-wracking, but on the other hand, people like models. So if you've made a nice model... 
um, they enjoy the model anyway, whether or not it's a good idea. So that's kind <laughs> of, you know, that helps. Um, and I make a lot of effort make, to make nice models. Um, but I must admit, mostly my experience is that I'm more, I'm more anxious about pleasing the director than I'm about pleasing the house, which isn't to say I don't care about the house. But usually my experience is that the, the director is the person who's nervous about impressing the house. I, I'm nervous about impressing the director. Have you ever gone to a disaster showing of the model? Well, I've had them where uh, they just go, we can't afford it, and that's very depressing when you've spent a lot of time. I did have one. I went to one of the first pieces of work I did with Jonathan, actually, um, in Zurich about 15 years ago, and I'd made an enormously complicated model and arrived and presented it all, and they just said, you know, it must be you know, completely out of your mind. We couldn't possibly afford this, and I had to go home and redo it. That was very disheartening. But um, no, not disastrous, as in uh, we think it's a horrible idea. I don't think I've had that. And, and once you, you've actually got all that accepted, you, you, and while the rehearsal's going, the set's being built at the same time. Yeah. Uh, how easy is it to communicate what you've designed on, in two dimensions to the people who are building it in three dimensions? Well, you have to be very practical. And, um, and actually, the model is in three dimensions. So in fact, although uh, all the technical drawings are in two dimensions, the same way they would be for an architect, um, the the model is actually often very useful and people will learn, a, it, it's quite helpful to have a model as well as a drawing because immediately it's clear to somebody um, how something is put together if you've made the model carefully. And I, it's one of the reasons I always make the model very carefully because it solves a lot of discussion later and I like to be very thorough and I work a lot abroad and I work with interpreters all the time and I find that if you are clear and precise in your technical drawings and in your model Confusions don't happen very much, and usually people appreciate it. If you know what you're doing, then they know what they're doing. And you've just moved on from designing to designing and directing, so total control. I know. <laughs> this is Faust. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, uh, this is um, a production I've just opened last um, Friday in, uh, in Russia with a wonderful conductor, Valery Gergiev. Um, and he... Um, He's a very brave man, and he, he decided to give me the opportunity to direct and design, which some, happens slightly more often in Russia than it does in the UK. Um, but I'd never directed anything before, so it was a very big, um, a very big adventure for me and very uh, fascinating challenge, and I must say I'm extremely tempted to stick with, with it, although it's ex very, very exhausting designing everything and being responsible for everything because there's nobody you can blame at all except yourself. <laughs> Yeah, you are the one in front of the firing squad. I'm afraid you are, yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, stay with because we're going to talk later in more detail about, about, about this particular production. Um, our second set of guests are Lisa Wilson, <coughs> uh, who covers the role of Mimi in this production, and Richard McGrath, who's a member of the Music Club. Will you please welcome Richard and Lisa? Lisa, we're going to talk first, I think, but t tell me a little bit... Uh, no, you're going to sing first for us, aren't you? Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And what are you going to sing first for us? So I'm going to sing uh, Mimi's first aria from Act One. And she has basically just arrived. There's been a power cut. Her candle has gone out, and she decides to go up the stairs and see if her upstairs neighbour can um, relight her candle. And um, there's a little bit of faffing with candles going out and um, him, her, her losing her door key, him finding it and pretending he hasn't found it in order to keep her in the room so that he can talk to her. And he sings a wonderful aria about him and his poetry and then he asks her to talk about herself. And she's a little bit nervous about this, this, um, this sudden having to talk about herself, but this is what she sings in response to his question. 
and kept you from your writing. Thank you very much. It is, of course, one of the great mysteries as to how Lucia became Mimi that we never discover, isn't it? Um, she does fall in love with Rodolfo pretty fast, and I wonder how difficult that is for anybody singing the role, to make it convincing. I mean, it happens basically in about eight and a half minutes. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, love at sight does sometimes work with some people, so uh, I think Mimi, she's like a... She's like a kind of a, a bud. She's, she's all sort of ready to sort of come into the world and, and live and experience. And um, I think no one possibly has ever before actually shown any interest in her and in her artistic life, her artistic vision. And I think to, to suddenly arrive in this place with a man who is not only an artist himself and understands how she feels, but is actually interested to, to let her speak. I mean, you, you'll have seen from, from that aria, she starts with a very simple well, I'm not, you know, very, a very interesting person, really, sentences. And then she comes into this amazing um, expression of her inner feelings. I think to, to actually find someone who will respond to her like that is a huge moment for her. So, in a way, I think it, it can be believable that at that moment she really begins to fall very deeply for this man. Is, is there supposed to be a social difference between... Rodolfo and Mimi. I mean, are we, are these, as they perhaps were more markedly when the production was first on the stage, mm -hmm. here, posh boys um, slamming it with local girls? Well, kind of, yes. I mean, there, there, there is a social difference between them in that um, Rodolfo does at one point talk about having a rich uncle. So there is money in the family somewhere. He obviously doesn't have access to it at the moment. I mean, he is as poor as Mimi in his life, in his garret as an artist. Um, Mimi, I think, although it doesn't actually say anything about Mimi's background, I think she comes from a much poorer background herself. Do you think that we're encouraged to think of Mimi too often as a victim and in that she becomes a passive uh, mm. character rather than actually being fairly strong-minded in some ways. I mean, she does agree quite quickly she will go off to Café Mimus. She's perfectly prepared to move in with him later on. I mean, do we think, do we need to remember all this about her? I think so. I think, um, I mean, yes, she's a victim in a sense, in that she's a victim of her social class. She doesn't have very much money. She can't afford doctors and medicine. And she's also um, a victim, obviously, of this terrible disease. But actually, she makes all the decisions. She says, I would like to come with you. Then um, later on, uh, when um, the, the, the story between the two lovers has come to pass that um, they are aware of her her um, terminal illness. She's the one who makes the decision that they should part, they should they should leave each other. So actually she, she's very active in, in setting the story of her life. And I think, I, I mean, you, you'll see tonight, she really wants to live. She's actually a very, very lively character. And she doesn't perceive herself, I don't think, as, as a victim herself. There's no self-pity, there's no aries about how terrible it is to be dying. She actually takes that information remarkably on board without, without any self-pity. She does still want to live. For the singer singing Mimi, what are the challenges? Uh, well, for me personally, I've never actually sung any of this style of music before. So I had to learn how to sing with this connection to the body all the time, all the way through these extremely long phrases. There's no let up. You have to be absolutely going for it all the time. 
Um, there's also the, the very famous moment at the end of Act One, this very, very high floated note that um, I find quite challenging. Kate sings it beautifully, so tonight you'll enjoy that very much. But it's, it's a notoriously difficult moment for the soprano and the tenor uh, to sing that high top C at the end of Act One when they've been singing their hearts out for their two huge great arias. So I think vocally there's a lot in it that, that has, has a few challenges, especially if you've not done that kind of style before like, like me. It was quite an eye-opener. But I wonder whether Puccini, in the score, does quite a lot of the work for you, in a way. I mean, he's, he's going to make you work, but he still, <laughs> in terms of what he actually sets out musically, has done quite a lot of the work. Uh, you mean in, in the way that In terms that of the characterisation, yeah. the motivation. I mean, in a sense, you haven't got to do quite so much as you would have to do possibly in another role for another composer. Well, that's interesting, because he, he is very clear. So he, he, he tends to write where he wants a portamento, a slide between the notes. He tends to write exactly the dynamics, exactly the tempo, where the rich should be, where the, the stretching of the music should be. But in a way that, I mean, that, that does an, an, an extra little challenge, because he doesn't tell you why he's done that. So it's almost like uh, a poem that's been written in a very strict meter, like a sonnet. To actually have the constraints of having so much written there for you, in a way, um, allows you to use your imagination much more to actually work out good reasons why you are singing that piano or, or you're singing that slower or um, to, to help you with to, to work a, a characterization that will work throughout the entire piece and stay true to what Puccini actually wanted. Uh, what are you going to sing next for us? So next I have the aria from Act 3. And um, the two lovers have... Um, well, they, they're, they're love turns out to be quite tempestuous. They have a lot of quarrels. And they've had a huge quarrel. And uh, Rodolfo has left in the middle of the night. And Mimi decides at dawn she's going to go and find him. And he has um, gone to where his closest friend, Marcello, is. And... Um, Mimi overhears a conversation. She doesn't understand why their relationship has been falling apart so much. And she overhears a conversation with Rodolfo saying that he needs to find a way to leave her because he's worked out that she has TB, that she is going to die. And he can't bear it any longer because he can't help her. And she um, makes a decision that, that they should part. And this is her aria on hearing this news and sort of allowing it to sink in a tiny little bit.
Lisa, thank you very much indeed. And Richard, thank you too. Richard, is this the first time you've worked on La Boheme? Yes, it is. Um, I had played uh, parts of Boheme, excerpts from it, but um, I was really happy to have the chance to work on the whole, uh, the whole opera this time. It's... And, and what, what, what have been your discoveries as, as you've, as it were, worked on it? And what have you come to think about it? Um... Well, the first thing I noticed a bit when I opened it, 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 it starts, the opening scene, well, it's a very energetic, lively scene, but um, it's as if the music gives the impression that this scene has been going on before the opera actually begins, so we're joining the scene in a way. Um, there are lots of beautiful uh, melodies and themes which recur throughout the opera and give it its, um, its structure. Um, these are themes associated with character or a particular scene, um, um, yes. <laughs> are, they, are they there to guide us? I mean, we've just heard the beginning of the of the act, 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 uh, that aria. Where we're we're hearing, of course, the music that we'd heard at the very beginning when Mimi and Rudolfo are just about to meet. Now, is is Miss Puccini reminding us of the the journey these two people have made from that first moment? Is, is this how they use these things? Um, exactly. Um, it's a um, it's a motif associated with Mimi, um, and it, it comes up. Um, well, several times throughout, and we we're always um, when we hear that we're reminded of um, of of Mimi, and uh, the other characters also have themes like um, Shona is uh, well, it's um, um, so it's very lively and sort of comical um, theme, which whenever he enters, we we hear that hear that tune, um, and Musetta is also has a quite um, a sprightly. Um, Motif. And even Monsieur Benoit, the lecherous landlord, has a little theme attached to him, doesn't he? Yes, exactly. They um, they all do. Um, yeah, Benoit. Um, so, and that's quite a uh, dramatic. Uh, um. If if this had been Wagner, these these themes would have been worked up into some vast, huge symphonic texture. Um, does Puccini work in that kind of way, or are they simply there to guide us, as it were, through? Um, well. But both. They're similar in that um, when the themes recur, they're orchestrated differently. Um, but uh, Wagner has um, longer orchestral s uh, sections where there isn't, uh, where there aren't vocal lines. And the way he treats the themes um, and the way he alters them is, is um, more psychologically profound. So without the vocal lines, we get 
kind of an insight into the state of mind of the character, whereas here there are really more reminders. I mean, when we hear Musetta's theme, we know that Musetta's here, but we don't really know exactly how she's feeling until she starts to sing and expresses it through, um, in the vocal line. Yeah. And, and are there particular effects that, that, that you've come, and indeed we all do, to associate with Puccini? Things that he does right the way through, probably from Edgar and Ivili right the way through to mm. Durandot. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, his use of colour is fantastic. Um, there, are some, uh, there are lots of very delicate um, moments, like at the beginning of Act 3, where um, there's a sustained uh, pedal point cello, and above that, uh, flute and harp um, playing staccato chords, which rep and they um, represent the snow falling. Um, and then there are very big, big sections. He often doubles the, the vocal line uh, with several instruments at um, climactic uh, points. Um, and at those points, he also gives um, s space. And he clearly marks that in the score where, um, where, where there should be space for, for the singer to um, give even more ex expression. Um, his style, um, apart from Musetta, the vocal writing is it moves in quite small intervals and often stepwise, which kind of gives it a, a sort of a conversational feel. Um, and actually, a lot of his phrases end with um, the same note twice, so the, uh, and, and with the same rhythm also, uh, again, giving that uh, conversational style. Thank yeah. you very okay. much. You stay with us, because okay. I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience here. And I come back now to you, Isabella, who've been waiting patiently. Let's talk about this particular production. Was it Jonathan's idea, or an idea you had together, that you would move this from um, the 1840s um, up until 1930, to Paris in the 30s? It was Jonathan's idea. And, and what, was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Well, I think that he... I think his reasons, uh, I shouldn't really speak for him, but I, 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 I think it's because the f photographic um, uh, material was so interesting and it's so, it, it, there's, there's very little photographic material or, or other material from the 1840s. Um, and, the, and the inspirational imagery that uh, we, could, we could use was, um, was just too tempting to, 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 to turn turn away from and it's a slightly less perhaps sentimental um sent you could view it as slightly less sentimental in terms of clothes because the clothes are are simpler and, and possibly more modern seeming although of course they're not they're not modern we can of course see on the screen to my left uh, what you uh, made uh, of the mm. show but the photographs we can't but i would urge you all to buy the program because you can see the original photographs uh, in the program mm. um, how did you set about the research i mean you did you look at photographers like Pierre Brassai, uh cartier bresson the photographers who were beginning to take little baby likers out onto the streets and, and film uh, or shoot street life. What did you look at? Oh, I, I, I actually um, had already, um, like a lot of people, I already knew um, Brisson, Cartier Brisson, and and Brassai, and um, uh, I. Um, Jonathan introduced me to a man called Katesh, um, and there were, you know, and even Duano, who's taking mm. photographs a little bit later. I mean, they're they're very famous photographs, and I've I'd been um, looking at them for years, but I looked at them again, and I looked at some some movies. Um, and I also went to Paris, actually, in this case, because I wanted to get a feel of it um, myself, and I took some of my own photographs, um, but mostly of buildings, not of people, because I'm not as confident and brave as uh, <laughs> some of the early French photographers. I mean, they are completely wonderful photographs, and I, and I was very, very happy to, to, to run with this idea of Jonathan's. Yeah. What makes them so distinctive? 
these photographs? Well, they're very, I mean, I, they're very personal. I mean, many of the photographs of, are of people in, in this underworld, in this sort of demi-monde. Um, so there are people cross-dressing or people who are obviously um, prostitutes or artists um, caught uh, unselfconsciously. Uh, clearly, the photographers were accepted by, the, by this community because the, 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 they're very, very touching, the photographs. Um, and you feel drawn in to the, to the lives of these people, which is why it's so perfect for, for Bohem. Um, and, but on top of that, there's also there's a grainy contrast in the way that, I mean, the lighting is natural lighting. It's not, it's, he's not used lighting as such, because all these the photographs um, that I, I looked at really were, were um, spontaneous photographs. But it just the quality is particularly wonderful um, in that the black is very dark and the, and the contrast is very rich and the way in which the, sh the, the shadows are observed is, is beautiful. So they're very inspiring. Is it also movies, and perhaps particularly the movies made by Jacques Prévert and Marcel Carnet, these doom-laden movies like Le Jour Se Lève, Hôtel du Nord, uh, and uh, Le Quai des Berumes, is it, these movies too, are they here in, 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 in the production? Well, they are really, yes. I mean, they, they, um, they seeped into my head before I, I knew about this production, before I was involved. Um, but um, I did look at some early films again, um, to refresh my mind, um, but it's there comes a point when it's hard to know how much you've put into something because it's part of your blood. You don't know where it came from. But I, I think I, I did do actually a lot of research on this project, but partly because Jonathan had already done a Bohem um, set uh, in this period, and I wanted to make it um, fresh because I didn't want to just do a copy of what he'd already done in another country with another designer. And we found a, a, a new way to do it while being true to his ideas. Four short acts, but three huge sets. Mm. And I wondered, I wondered, I mean, solving that problem must have been a very early one to, to deal with. It's a real, it's a real pig, um, trying to get from the intimate scene into Café Mumus um, and, and back again. I mean, it is one of the thing, big things that any time anyone sees a bohème, it's the, the big scene change. Um, and how you manage to make a garret look small and pokey. Um, you know, sometimes people have a huge garret all over the whole stage and then they, the cafe comes into it. And I, as you will find out, those of you who are going this evening, I didn't take that choice because I wanted it to be a, a real garret feeling. But also, I mean, the great joy is that so often uh, the amount of time necessary to create Café Mumus, but indeed also uh, the streets corner early in the morning, is such that you spend an awful lot of time sitting outside rather than in the theatre. <laughs> you were obviously telling me we should try and see this as, uh, as a continuous story. Yes, I like doing that. I mean, generally it's more fun. If, you, if you've got a scene change, you want, uh, I think it's part of the fun for an audience is to see how you do it. So I try, if at all possible, to make scene changes that are inventive um, and help m the story move forward and that, that relate to the music so you don't have to stop the music. So I prefer, if I uh, can at all, uh, if it's at all possible in any production, I will try and take advantage of the scene change to actually add to the show rather than to be a, uh, a pause. How many costumes did you design for this? Oh, I, 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 you did tell me you were going to ask me this question, and I forgot to check. Um, mm -hmm. um, well, I designed all the costumes, so uh, <laughs> um, however many chorus there are in here, I think there must be something like 60 in the chorus. So that's 60 of them, and then the principals have got um, one or two each. Um, it must be near 100, mustn't it? Yes, it sort of adds up. 
And, 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 and I, I went away thinking, not in any sort of pejorative sense, wonderful coats and hats. I mean, this is an opera all about coats and hats, isn't it? Well, there's it? a lot of, you know, it's winter and people are outside in Paris, it's cold. Um, and anyone who's been to Paris, you know, it does, it, it's, it's lovely, but it's quite often raining. Um, and um, you need to have a few coats and hats. We actually got a lot of original French um, clothing from that period. We managed to find some actual 1930s um, workmen's clothes that hadn't been used. It was very exciting. We, did, we, we, did, we bought a lot of clothes from France, and then those we were not able to buy, we copied from genuine clothes. I, I, I enjoyed, in this case, making it very filmic. The um, costumes, but wonderful detail too. Mm. Uh, half belts on the back of coats, mm. and you know uh, hats that fit in, a, in that very particular thing over the kind of marcelled wigs mm. and so on. Quite tricky sometimes because sometimes you end up with a perching hat and it doesn't work so well. But actually, in this, in, it's been particularly beautifully revived. Um, I saw it on on Monday. So, um. is a revival a, a chance for the designer to have second thoughts at all, or is it? Well, it can be. It wasn't in this case because I actually wasn't um, employed to work on it um, and I was uh, away working on something else. But, um, yes, sometimes it can, certainly for directors, they can have second thoughts about where you might sit and where, you know, when you, whether you turn your head at this point or that point and little details of characterisation can develop. And, um, yes, you can think, well, maybe I, I didn't really like the way that um, cardigan sat. Well, let's try something else. And sometimes it's just a question of working with a different singer so that this will work better with this singer than it worked with that singer. Um, but predominantly, when things are revived, the designer is not called back in, so you, you, you don't get much of a, of a go at it. Thank you, Isabella. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's a chance if you would like to ask questions. If you'd like to put your <coughs> hand up, there is the row microphone. We have one in the front row. The microphone is on its way in a second. At the end of the front row. I just wanted to ask the singer, I forgot your name. Sorry. Um, when he said you haven't sung this style before oh. can you what do you mean do you mean just this period of opera or what, what, what do you mean basically this this period of opera so the, the the long romantic lines the sort of swelling i've done i mean I've, I've sung a fair amount of mozart and things that feel a lot more contained as you sing them so this this amount of freedom i haven't really had before so how is like how is this style different in terms of like your technique that you use for this i I tried to develop a, a, a very physically connected sound, um, so one where the, um, the, the sound basically feels like it comes directly from, from your guts, straight out, and then to maintain that through the entire line. So th there wasn't so much um, placing, fiddling, like you might possibly think of for something that has a smaller orchestra, so you have more space to be able to fiddle with the sound you're making. Uh, because the, the, the sound beneath you is so big, you have to be able to ride it, basically. Good. Do we have another question? This wonderful English grandma, I always think that we all sit there. To make a set work from every seat in the house, and whether you have a, you know, do you spend all your time rushing up to the gods and checking that? <laughs> <laughs> I do, but also when you design it, you do. It is the big terror is that somebody won't be able to see something important, so I do check sight lines, and I, I'm afraid in some theatres, you know, if you sit in the boxes at the side, it's never very good. It's very very hard because the the in a traditional horseshoe-shaped auditorium like, like this, um, if, you're, if that's the, theater, the stage there and 
you, this is the balcony. If you sit here or here, you can watch the conductor wonderfully, but you really won't see much of the set because you get a tiny little area. So I'm afraid I do fail um, for some seats, but I do do my very, very best to make sure that everybody gets to see every, every important moment, um, even if they don't see all the unimportant moments. rehearsing against a piano. What is the contrast between rehearsing with a piano and now going to a full orchestra? And what's the complication or, or the connection between the two? Lisa, that's a question Me? for you. The okay. When you arrive <laughs> from the orchestra. Well, um, it, it can be tricky to, to work out things like volume. So, for example, when um, in Act 4, when she's on her deathbed, how quiet can you actually sing and still be heard by the person right at the back of the theatre? So that's not quite an orchestra question, but that's something that has to, can only be worked out when you actually get on the stage. We have a rehearsal called a zitz, where the singers sing with the orchestra, but they don't do any stage stuff in, in a room somewhere. And that can be very good for working out. There, there are different things. For example, um, pianists generally, and I think you might want to say something about this, but pianists generally play exactly on the beat. Orchestras who play together a lot have their own way of doing things, and sometimes they play just slightly after the beat. Perfectly together, but just slightly after the beat. So th that's a time to get used to the, those kind of changes. And then once you actually get onto the, um, onto the set itself, it's all about volume, how loud can you sing, how quiet can you sing, what can you get away with in this space with these instruments. Do you want to say something about, about that too? Perhaps particularly picking up Lisa's point about on yes. the beat and... Just uh, behind the beat. Right? Yes, well, I suppose that's part of the job of being a repetiteur is to, um, to give, to try and make a sound that's as close to the orchestra as possible on, on the piano. And in some scores, that's easier than others. I think that Bohème is actually a, a very good one. Um, it, I think it works really well on piano. Um, uh, regarding playing um, on or after the beat, um, yeah, th that uh, especially for example, if there's um, a, st a string, a string chord, a, a kind of a long sustained string chord, that normally it takes just a, a fraction of time after the beat for that chord to to, to sound, um, and that's. Um, as a repetitor, one can try to get that effect across, but I'm, I mean, it's still a piano, so there are limitations. But um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. We have time, I think, for one more question. Would I like to ask the last question? We have a last question. Yes. With the costume design, do you always start with the main characters, or do you start with the chorus? Do you begin? I always start. With, I do always start with the main characters. But um, with something like Traviata, you might have a bit of an idea about how you want the chorus to look, because it's, it, it, some choruses are very um, present, and, and the, the, the feeling of them is very in, intrinsic to the, to the atmosphere of the piece. But basically, I'll start with the principles, yes. Some thank yous, then. Thank you, all of you, for being a wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience and listening to us. Uh, but special thanks to our three guests, Isabella Bywater, Lisa Wilson, and Richard McGrath. Thank you all very much indeed.